Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. We are here. Most people will call it a new season when you come back for your second year or whatever. I don't really do the season thing on in podcast form because this ain't really a show. This is just a continuing uh, whatever you want to call it. But we are back. I, we consider this year number two. It's this is the first episode of, you know, the second year. We're back. This is Who's This Podcast For. My name is Nate, as always. And we're here. We're going to finish, or continue, rather, with the Watch Along of Love Season 2. We're on the second episode of Season 2. And, um, like I said, I don't know where, I told you last week, I don't know where we're going from week to week with this pod. I just kind of let it flow. Today, I just kind of want to, I remember liking this episode a lot. And I just kind of want to see it. And uh, I like where they go in season two. It's a very good season. So I figured let's keep going. And, um, oh, I lied because <laughs> I completely forgot what I was supposed to be doing this week based on last week. And I have Criterion that I'm supposed to go over. We'll watch this episode. Then we'll do that. That's how I think that that's how it can go. I'm looking for my criteria. I'm like, where they go? I just want to move them. But um, I think that's how we'll do this. Actually, hold on one second. We are disjointed here at the studio, but it's okay because uh, things happen, you know. But I had to go get my criterions real quick. I have six new ones. They had a sale going on all of May. It's still going on. And I got some titles that uh, I've been wanting to see for a while. And uh, we'll talk about that. I also have new books and a new Blu-ray I talked about last week. We'll do the Blu-ray along with the criterions. The books... Yeah, one is on filmmaking with Alexander McKendrick, and uh, I think that's the only new one I have right now. Oh, I have another one, but it's on it's on scene writing, so it's not that it's not that vital, not that important right now. But uh, one other one other quick break. Okay. Had to run and get my criteria, uh, my Blu-ray, rather. Okay, now I'm done. Enough interruptions, enough haphazard uh, recording style. We back in. We locked in. So we're going to lock in on this episode. This is season two, episode two, called Friends Night Out. It says, while Gus heads to a bar with his guy friends, a restless Mickey starts with trouble at a dinner party full of cup, uh, couples. Remember the last episode was the lockdown? It was two weeks ago, so you probably might not uh, remember it that much, but... So when Gus and Mickey are locked down in the, uh, at the apartment complex and they can't really, you know, get out, Mickey wants to go home because she doesn't think she needs to be around Gus. They end up sleeping together, not together in that way, but in the same bed because it was a late night. And uh, I think that's where we're going to pick up with this episode. So we're about to get it. Uh, let's see. Let me get here. I'm at zero, 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 zero. Y'all remember how to count down if you're new. 
it's five, four, three, two, one. Then press play now. And after I say now is when you press play. All right, let's get it. This is season two, episode two of Love called Friends Night Out. Uh, five, four, three, two, one. Press play now. And we're on. Sorry about all that craziness at the beginning. I completely forgot what I was supposed to be doing today. Um, and, and we'll do those right after this. Seven DVDs we're going to have to look through. So That's exciting. But Mickey's waking up next to Gus. <laughs> She's like, oh, I slept over. I wasn't supposed to. Now she's trying to sneak out. Gus is waking up. <laughs> Gus said he had a weird dream. Making a very strange comparison right now. That makes some sense. Between Osama Bin Laden and Macaulay Culkin. So Mickey mentioned that she's supposed to go to her meeting. The Sex and Love Addicts meeting. She's already missed it. So she's asking, can she take a shower at Gus's place? Because she's trying to make the next meeting at 11. So Gus is going to run out and get coffees. Um, so, you know, he's trying to really bring down the chance of anything happening. Trying to respect her, you know, what what, what she's going through. Didn't want to really be around while she's showering because that gives you a chance to, you know, do something that she probably doesn't need to do at the moment. So now she's using his, um, smelling his deodorant, use some of his Listerine, trying to get herself right for that meeting while he goes out and gets coffee and is on his way back. And he looks pretty happy. Far cry from that last kind of, uh, thing or, or their final moments in the last season so now she's getting on about one, owning one towel you said big red so she's in the towel and he's back with the coffee and said people say he looks like Richard Maddow and he does. She's like in a bar t-shirt. Uh, 
to say you own one towel and three half empty bottles of shampoo. You have very particular hair. That's funny. So Gus asked her when they're going to hang out again. She was like, I kind of think we should just basically play it by ear, like touch base in like a week. Probably need to be, even if we're not hooking up, we don't really need to be hanging out probably. And he's being trying to be very supportive. He said, are we texting during that time? Or, I don't think texting is a good idea either. She said she can go a little crazy with the texting as he knows. Let's keep that emergency only. And he was like, yeah, yeah. So if I get hit by a muscle tissue. Yeah, so that's so they're trying to work around her problems. <laughs> and so they're uh, trying to say their goodbyes. And they have a hug. And that's it. And she's off. And um, they did the best. They didn't. Uh, he said it. We didn't, you know, blank. And she said, what a night we had, you know, with the running around uh, apartments and everything. And uh, yeah, now we're at the intro. Dean Holland directed. And so now we're back with Mickey. At the Sex and Love Addicts place. So She's telling them about the guy that she likes, which is Gus. So she feel really good about not doing things with him last night and taking it slowly. She said, but if I'm honest with myself, what I really do is just text him right now and try and hang out with him all day. She talks about her neighbor having a dinner party thing later. I just really wish I could bring him with me. She says she's trying to do things different this time. So she hopes it turns out okay if she does it differently. And it's completely it's completely heartbreaking. It really is, because it's an addiction. Now, like we talked about, it's not just alcohol, it's not just drugs. You can be addicted to anything. If you have the gene and the personality type, it can manifest in many ways. And she can tell that like it's taking everything in her to not text him and just hang out with him all day. But she's really trying to be better because she knows that it's not healthy, and it's, and it's you know, it's, it's completely heartbreaking. But it is, it's very respectable that she is trying. You know, a lot of people push that off like they don't have a problem, and that's probably that's the worst thing you can do. Anyway, 
We'll talk about some of that at the end, probably. Or maybe not, because i got other stuff. But Gus is talking to his neighbor. Uh, I can't think of his name. Chris? Because he threw a shoe over at his uh, balcony. And Gus actually want to hang out, go to a bar or something. And so Gus tries to throw his shoe back to him after they make plans to hang out, and it doesn't make it. And it goes in the shrubbery. So Gus is going out tonight to hang out with the kids. We're in Los Feliz. These houses are stacked up and really nice. We're back with Birdie. Mickey walks in. And Birdie, uh... And telling her about her night. Business spending the night with Gus. And Birdie tells Mickey that uh, she had sex with Randy three times. And that he's actually viral, even though you wouldn't think about it because he's on the um, he's on the heavy side. So she's just telling everything. Just will Birdie go to the dinner party with her tonight? Because she does want to be a seventh wheel. And Birdie said maybe she asked Gus. So I don't think that's a good idea for me to hang out with him at all, all the time. Just, and she basically tells Birdie that I'm a sex and love addict and an alcoholic. <laughs> Just want you to know that I'm not currently engaging in any of that behavior. She said she thought she should tell you. And Birdie said it's a lot to take in. And Birdie's trying to be supportive as well. <laughs> Birdie says she's vibrating with this news. Look at my hand. It's like... She said, I thought I was doing something wrong, and that's why we weren't getting along. And Mickey said, no, I'm just kind of a mess up. And Birdie gives her a hug. She's like, no, the female friends. She's like, no, I haven't told nobody. Oh. And Birdie drops some crazy news. Says, I cut up a rabbit once. <laughs> Said when she was eight, she found a dead rabbit and cut it up and put it in a bowl and the shit. Did the rabbit thing? I wasn't eight, I was 23. And Mickey says, I'm going to go get ready for the dinner party. <laughs> so Bertie just wanted to share, but you might want to keep that one to yourself. You might want to keep that one to yourself. A dead rabbit you cut up? I don't know about that one. Probably not the best thing for Mickey also to have Gus's t-shirt. I just realized it because she needed a t-shirt. But now we're watching them both get ready at their own places to go do different things. And Mickey decides to wear the shirt from Gus. Well, she picks it up and smells it. And Gus... Gets the towel that Mickey had on. 
to clean his face off after he washed it and Nick smiles at it. Mickey still has the shirt on and is smelling it insensively or insensely. Incessantly? One of them words. Marcus just is now going to meet his friends at the at the bar. Like a little dinner spot. Yeah, kind of like a sports bar. So it's all the gang the gangs are here. Basically all the guys that hang out with him at his house and a new guy. Uh, who we haven't seen to this point, I don't think. It's good that the dinner party is literally right next door, so you can just walk across the backyard and you're there. And apparently she cut up the skirt to make it a little bit, you know, more free. So Gus is talking about some friends, Die Hard, crossover. So they're meeting girls at a different table. And they're kind of nagging them about sounding like nerds for talking about friends. But one of the girls says she loves friends. so And so now Chris is inviting the girls over to keep to talk more about it. So now they got some girls in the mix. And one of these girls is the same girl from Master of None. So now they're talking about all the 90 sitcoms. So now we're back at the dinner party with Mickey and her friends who are all married. Six of them, one of her, so seven. The one of the girls was about to pour some wine and she declined, opting instead for water. And the conversation clearly isn't really interesting, Mickey, because she's really talking about like farming and fruits and vegetables and such. And, And Mickey tried to and Mickey tried to ingest her story about the cop thing last night. But all they want to talk about is the baby stuff and brands and labels and fruits and vegetables and homes and such.
and Mickey just kind of is not taking to it well. And she kind of leaves the table and goes over to the living room. And they're getting into kids and vaccines and yuck. I'm in a relationship and I wouldn't want to talk about most of this stuff. So I can only imagine how Mickey feels. It's just like, I don't want to talk about pinworms. Looks like table topics. Come on, enough about the worms. And so she gets everybody up and they're going to play a little game. Meanwhile, back at the bar, Chris has all the drinks, bringing them to the table. They still got the girls there. They're chilling out. I've seen this guy before. He's a comedian. Uh, I think I used to watch some of his stuff back in the day on all that digital. Shout out to them. So they're all getting to know each other, all the girls and the guys and one of the girls is trying to talk to Gus while Gus is just in his phone. Just seems like she's interested in him. <laughs> and he tells him that he works on the Wichita set. And when the girl says, well, we love the, she's like, are you a fan? And she said, we love to hate watch it. And she, Gus said, it's the most hate, hate watch show on TV. It's the worst, but in the best way. And he was like, thank you. Yep. So he's starting to ask him more about himself. He's from South Dakota. She's from Michigan. Midwesterners. And the girl said she's going to go get another drink and ask Gus to come with him. And he said, no, it's okay. She said, I'll buy you a drink. So she's really trying to get him away and talk alone. He said he's working on this one. So it'd be a waste of money for you to give me a drink because I'm still going easy. So so he basically rejects her. And her face is like very odd. So this brings up a interesting dilemma. Um you know, they're not, we're going to talk about it then. But Chris noticed it too, and he comes over to Gus. He's like, what's up, man? What's the way you're looking at your phone? Your phone room? And Chris asked him, are you having fun? He's like, I'm having a good time. He's like, come on, what's up? Like, I know you. He said, I don't mean to be a baby or whatever. It's just, I don't know. Thought it was going to be boys night. He didn't want to be around girls. He said, now we're talking to girls. He's like, right, right. I just, uh, I don't know. Doesn't this feel weird sometimes? Like this whole thing we're doing. Like, But not all of them are with somebody. He said, are we past this by now? Group of guys all getting together and trying to flirt and hit on girls. It's just, and Chris is like, no, that's awesome. Like, what? what are you talking about?
If you heard it, you heard it. You heard he said. And Gus reassures he's having a good time. And he's still in his phone. So now back at the dinner party, and they're playing, playing a couple questions or whatever. So they're playing a game, and they came around to Mickey, and she was like, um, I'm not really with nobody. Uh, Mickey changed the subject. To another question. So the question wasn't even a question that Mickey asked. She asked the question to cause some, you know, strife about who would you sleep with in your partner's family if you could. And they didn't see the question, so they think it's legit. And so it's causing a bit of problems with some of the answers. One of the guys says, your sister, to his significant other. And Mickey's trying to... And one of the guys realized what Mickey's doing. Mickey's laughing at it. And the guys, was that card even real? Or are you just stirring up, you know? She's like, what are you talking about? And the guy checks the card. It was Brian. And they're looking and they don't see the card. He said, I'm sick of this. And he knows her. So he says, you hate us because we have family and children. She said, I don't hate you because you have a family. You're just a little bit boring. He said, I'm sorry we can't be as cool as Mickey Dubs. And so she admits she made the question up. She tried to live in the party up a little bit and get away from talking about the Wardorf score and princess dresses and pinworms. And they're all just kind of looking at her like. <laughs> and she stumbled all over trying to get up. <laughs> I'll repeat that one if you heard it, you heard it. So now back at the party after Mickey is back at the bar, Mickey has ruined the party. And he's standing at the bar by himself. And here comes the girl who was trying to talk to him earlier. Yeah. 
She like, what's your problem? No, you totally blew me off. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just got a little uncomfortable when you were flirting with me. So you thought that I was flirting with you? He said, weren't you? Just said, okay, I have a boyfriend. So I didn't know that. That's been exactly the just thinking about hooking up with you. He says, so why were you even talking to me this whole time? She says, because I'm friendly and I find human nature interesting. He said, okay. I'm not going to stay home because my boyfriend's out of town. So obviously I misjudged this whole situation tonight. And then he sees Michael Landon on the TV. And the girl says, you're a jerk, basically. And he takes the picture of Michael Landon to send to uh, Mickey. And Chris is like, you okay? Look, I'm taking a picture of Michael Landon. He says, I'm right in the middle. I'm in the right here, so I'm going to get out of here. So Gus takes off. And Chris says, whatever, and goes back to his friends. Gus runs outside. He sent the picture to Mickey. And he said, this is an emergency. It's Michael Landon. And so now I think they're going to meet up. Because Mickey's back home after ruining her thing. And she sees the message that Gus just sent. Just of course, that landing here. So where are you? So it's, I think it's over. So I was at a bar, meat market. So where are you? And the song is great. Heading to Korean. Um, was it Korean barbecue place? Korean barbecue on Nathan Catalini said, um, sounds good. The song is No Hard Feelings by the Avet Brothers, by the way. A-V-E-T-T. The Yvette Brothers, No Hard Feelings. Love this song. The show put me on to it, actually. And so they're like kind of circling each other. He goes sit in his car, he checks his message, and smiles. I'm pretty sure Mickey was like, meet me there or whatever. So he's taking off. So I think they're just going to forget all the problems and just be with each other. 
And now on 8th and Catalina at the Korean barbecue space, we see them together eating some uh, food together. <laughs> Songs fire. Sorry if I was humming. And they're outside afterwards. And you just see it like in that kiss. Maybe they shouldn't, but they do. And in the car, they do something else. And that's the end of episode two, season two. And uh, yeah, I really like that one. So Friends Night Out is an interesting episode. One of my favorites of this season and a season full of some of my favorites and some I consider some of the best episodes of this show. The season, the episode two Friends Night Out is really a great one. Um, I'm not going to be on this too long. It's not that consequential, but you just kind of see what it is, right? Like they still have problems. Obviously, Mickey will never not have problems. She's a sex and love addict. And an alcoholic. That means you're going to be fighting your whole life, sadly, uh, unfortunately. But it's not a fight you can, you know, you can't afford to lose. And also, it's not a fight you should lose. I think you should be able to fight that stuff. Um, obviously, it's hard. But, you know, it's things, it's really, it's about discipline and determination. And especially if you have the most high in your life, you can get through any trial and tribulation. Uh, get through any trial, rather. Uh, on this earth, there's nothing too hard for you to overcome so mickey is gonna fight for the rest of her life and you see in this episode she's fighting at the beginning but the dinner party kind of showed you that she still has some hang-ups you know beyond being a sex and love addict and alcoholic she's just kind of an off-putting person uh she can't hang out with what you would consider quote-unquote normal people even though i don't know if any of them are uh any more normal than she is but she just can't find herself in those settings maybe if gus was there it'd be a bit different maybe that's why she was lashing out because she was alone and she didn't want to be a seventh wheel but um remember at the end of last season her whole thing about being alone was that that was needed for a year she was going to try but then she slept over at his house uh obviously things that they couldn't stop she kept his shirt you're inundating yourself with all of these things you know uh, not really being able to stop uh, because it's still around you. You have to completely cut it off cold turkey in this aspect, I think. And then on the Gus side, you know, he's being respectful. You know, he clearly likes her, but does he like her because she's broken? Because he didn't like her when he thought she was normal and just a cool girl, or at least he did enough to sleep with her. But then with the whole Heidi stuff, he wasn't really hitting her back because she was being a bit clingy. And I know he apologized because he's like, I'm trying to be cool, but I'm not cool. And, you know, all that kind of stuff. So maybe he's being a bit of a pretender as well. And they both kind of came to rectify that. 
or at least come to acknowledge that about themselves. But then this episode, she said probably shouldn't text. She probably wasn't about to text him. And then he sent her the Landon uh, hair or the, the was it Michael Landon. And they uh, acknowledge at the beginning of the episode not to talk. And then he meets the girl from the same area he's from. He's from South Dakota. She's from Michigan. So they're both from the Midwest. Um, and she seems well adjusted. He seems well adjusted. But but he but she has a boyfriend. But it didn't feel like that at first. Now obviously, uh, that could have just been, you know, could have been a lie or could have been the truth. Who knows? We don't know that person. We're probably never gonna see her again. If I had to bet. But they have that conversation, and then she like you blew me off. I'm not gonna sit around at home just because my boyfriend's out of town. So she just wanted to go out and talk to people, but it didn't seem that way. It seemed like she was very much interested in a different kind of way with him than just talking. Um, I think he picked up on that as well. His friend Chris was trying to get him to open up, but and he had the whole spiel about are we a little bit too old for this stuff? And it's like, I mean, maybe I don't know how old he's, maybe 33 or something like that. You might be too old to go out and such like that, but is it because you're doing it for her? Like, are you doing it for yourself? Do you want to make sure that that works? But again, y'all are friends. Not really much more, or at least it's complicated. So this episode does have, you know, I think, I think it's very interesting. And then by the end, they do meet up. Now, again, what's Mickey about to hit up him? Probably not. She's probably going to go eat that Korean barbecue by herself and then go home and try to do this again by herself. But she didn't. They met up on his word, you know. Well, he texted her. He didn't offer. He just said it sounds good. And then I'm sure she said, meet me there. But that wouldn't have, the door wouldn't have opened if he didn't text. So again, is it respect? Are you respecting somebody's boundaries? But then again, if he texts, does that mean that she has to invite him out? But obviously she might still be pretty weak in this because it's pretty new. So any little bit of uh any little bit of desire or um what sort of thinking of any little bit of uh want you know could push you over the edge and apparently it did and then not only do they do they eat and be around each other they do other things and that's probably not good either um so yeah what we're figuring out is that gus maybe is trying to take on the entire mantle of savior like i want to save her and I'm only for her, but is that, you know, is that shared on the other side? And Mickey is pretty much unable to fight her instincts or her desires or her nature at this point. And Gus isn't really helping out with that. So we'll see if it blows up in their face. I have an inkling that it might or it might not. The show is called Love after all. But I will say this about Friends Night Out, the episode. I do love it. It's one of my favorite episodes of the show. Next week is While You Were Sleeping. Mickey tried to help her work buddy Truman. My guy, uh, what's my guy's name? Uh, Bobby. Bobby Lee. Uh, work buddy Truman out of a sticky situation and on set accident rattles the Wichita cast and crew. I remember really loving this episode as well. So we'll get to that next week. That'll be fun. But now let's get to some Criterions and a Blu-ray. And we'll be, we'll be done. Let's see here. I'm on YouTube right now looking at stuff I don't need to be because I'll get in a rabbit hole and then I'm watching Billy Wilder videos all day and 
uh, Jack Nicholson stuff, so I don't want to do that. So let me put this remote down. So a few weeks ago, I bought a Blu-ray of a movie I've always wanted to see. Never got around to it by Tim Burton called Ed Wood with Johnny Depp and uh, Martin Landau and, you know, Bill Murray. Uh, allegedly a great movie. So we're going to read the back of that one. But first, I think I'll say that one for the end. I'm going to start with my criterions. I've been really getting into the kind of 40s, 50s, 60s era of American cinema. And a lot of these picks will kind of show that, except one or two. Um, I've just been going back to like the John Houston's and the Billy Waters, like I've mentioned plenty of times, and William Wyler and uh, who some other guys around that time, a Delbert man, you know, who made Marty in 1955 with Patty Chayefsky writing the script. And uh, was it Fred Zinnemann who made High Noon and movies like that? I've been kind of in that era, finding myself really going back to that stuff. I've went there before with the Fellini and, you know, people like that. But, um, yeah, I just, I just really find myself, like, going back to um, Elliot Kazan and uh, David Lean. You know, a lot of that 50s, 60s American cinema, even though some of them are British and they definitely made uh, – British movies, but it kind of had the same kind of spirit to it, I'll say. So we'll start with the first one. I won't rattle too much longer. The Asphalt Jungle, a John Houston production. You might not know this one. 1950 is the year. In a smoke, in a smog-choked city somewhere in the American Midwest, an aging criminal mastermind newly released from prison hatches a plan for a multi-dollar, million-dollar jewel heist and draws a wealthy lawyer and a cherry-picked trio of outlaws into his carefully devised but inevitably doomed scheme, anchored by an abundance of nuanced performances from a gifted ensemble, including a tight jaw of Sterling Hayden and a sultry Marilyn Monroe in her breakout role. This gritty crime classic by John Houston climaxes in a meticulously detailed anatomy of a robber that has reverberated through the genre ever since, an uncommonly naturalistic view of a seamy underworld, the asphalt jungle painstakingly depicts the calm professionalism and toughness of its gangster heroes while inventing, evincing a remarkable depth of compassion for their all-too-human hum- fragility, and it showcases a master filmmaker at the height of his powers. For many things about the asphalt jungle, I'm glad I own it. Can't wait to watch this one. Now, speaking of my guy Billy Wilder, it's a movie that I've been kind of dancing with for a long time. Should I get it? Should I not? Um, because I've heard people talk about it, and I don't like the stuff that they were putting on it. But that could be a modern depiction or a modern interpretation of the movie and putting more on it than it probably should have placed on it. So I'm not going to hold them, not going to hold that against the movie when uh, other people are putting modern sensibilities on a movie that came out in 1959. Now, some of that might be there, but I just choose to not uh, see everything in a certain way. If you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. If you don't, you don't. The movie in question is called Some Like It Hot by Billy Water. We talked just talked about him. Uh, Billy Water production, 1959. One of the most beloved films of all time. This sizzling masterpiece by Billy Water set a new standard in Hollywood comedy. After witnessing a mob hit, Chicago musicians Joe and Jerry, played by Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon, and landmark performances skipped town by donning drag and joining an all-female band en route to Miami. The charm of the group singer Sugarcane Marilyn Monroe at the height of her powers leads them ever further into extravagant lies. As Joe assumes the persona of a millionaire to woo her, 
as Joe assumes the persona of a millionaire through her, so, sorry, and Jerry's female alter ego winds up engaged to a tycoon with a whip smart script by Wilder and IAL Diamond and sparking chemistry among its finely tuned cast. Some like a hot is as deliriously funny and fresh today as it was when it first knocked audiences out six decades ago. Now, that's a movie that, based if you listen to the right people or the wrong people, they'll say it's a certain type of movie for a certain group. And I don't believe that. It's kept me from watching it because, you know, it is what it is. But I will no longer. I will watch it and give Billy Wilder his just due because he's literally a master of cinema and of the craft and maybe the best ever. So I won't not watch it just because of modern sensibilities. And again, take, take that how you will <laughs> based on everything I just read about it. But apparently it's very funny, very sharp. And I know, I know the dialogue is going to be great and the filmmaker is going to be great. So I'm not, so I'm gonna watch, I'm gonna watch it. And I'm very excited too, because I love Billy Wilder's work. The third one is called a face in the crowd directed by Elliot Kazan, written by Bud Schoberg in 1957. So again, I told you they're all kind of in that same fifties era era and period that's kind of where i am right now um and i you know i i just find it more engaging i find the movies to be shot in a different way than modern movies today and honestly um i prefer it so let's get into this one a face in a crowd a face in a crowd chronicles the rise and fall of larry lonesome Rhodes, andy griffith a boisterous entertainer discovered in an arkansas drunk tank by marcia jeffries played by patricia neal a local radio producer with ambitions of her own his charisma and cunning soon shoot him to the heights of television stardom and political demagoguery, forcing Marsha to grapple with the manipulative, reactionary monster she has created. Directed by Elliot Kazan from screenplay by Bud Schoberg, this incisive satire features an extraordinary debut screen performance by Griffith, who brandishes the charm in an uncharacteristically sinister role. Though the film was a flop in its initial release, subsequent generations have marveled at its early prescient di- diagnosis of the toxic intimacy between media and politics in American life. That's a face in the crowd, and I love the uh, I love the cover for these. Criterion is known for their covers, and I really love this one. I didn't know Andy Griffith Griffith was even in movies. I thought it was just an Andy Griffith uh, show, but apparently not. So we have three more, and one of these gets a little bit more modern, not completely modern, because to this point it's been thirty three years, but. Based on the time period we've been in for the last three, this is a bit different. This is called Miller's Crossing by Joel and Ethan Cohen. 1990 is the time. A roaring 20s gangster saga that only the Cohen brothers could concoct, Miller's Crossing marries the hard-boiled sensibility of classic noir fiction with the filmmaker's trademark savory, di- savory dialogue, colorful characters, and finely calibrated set pieces. Gabriel Byrne brings a wiry gravitas to the role of Tom Reagan, the quick-thinking right-hand man to a powerful crime boss, Albert Finney. Tom's unflappable cool is tested when he begins offering the services to a rival outfit, setting off a cascade of betrayals, reprisals, and increasingly berserk violence. The hopperous visuals of cinematography Barry Sonnenfeld, who directed the many black movies, I believe, majestically elegaic score by Carter Burwell, and vivid supporting performances from John Turturro and Marsha Gay Harden come together in a slice of pulp perfection. They're crackles with sardonic wit while plumbing existential questions about free will and our own terrifying capacity for evil. I tried to watch this one a few years ago. I was on my laptop, and I turned it on like the first five minutes. I was like, eh, I'm not in the mood for this. Turned it off and never really returned to it. I can return to it now. I do believe I'm better at watching movies, and I do think 
there is a certain way you have to watch certain movies. You have to kind of understand each movie for their own thing and watch it in its own way. That's the best. You wouldn't start a five-hour movie at 10 o'clock at night. Um, yeah, that I think that should be an all-day thing so you can have more time to pace yourself. And a movie like this, it was, it's not an all-day movie. It's like two hours long, but I wasn't in the right frame and the right head of uh, frame of mind, headspace, and I just never returned to it. And I love the coins. I love Fargo. No Country for Old Man, we talked about it. It's one of my favorite movies ever. And this one is, a lot of people says it's their best. So I'm going to give it another chance. We got two more. One of them, we're going back to that, to that 50s, 60s era, going to 1965 for this one, by Robert Aldrich, who you probably haven't heard of, The Flight of the Phoenix, starring James Stewart, Richard Attenborough, Peter Finch, Hardy Krueger, and Ernest Borgnine, who I told you, or mentioned earlier, was in Marty in 1955. Uh, so, you know, let's get into it. A downed airplane is a motley group of men's only protection from the relentless desert sun and is psychologically charged disaster epic. One of the all-time great survival movies, James Stewart is a veteran pilot who's Benghazi-bound plane, carrying passengers played by an unshaven ensemble of screen icons, including Richard Attenborough, Ernest Borgnine, Ian Bannon, Dan DeRaya, Peter Finch, and George Kennedy crash lands in a remote Sahara. As tensions simmer among the survivors, they find themselves forced to trust a coldly logical engineer, Hardy Krueger, whose plan to get them out may just be crazy enough to work or crazy or could kill them all. Directed with characteristic punch by Hollywood iconoclast Robert Aldrich, The Flight of the Phoenix balances adventure with human drama as it conducts a surprising and complex examination of authority, honor, and camaraderie among desperate men. I love a movie about a group of guys trying to get themselves out of a situation where you have a team and everybody has their own distinct personality or something that they bring to the table and the team. If you put them on one location, have to get them out, that's even better. This is right up my alley. I haven't seen it, but I'm sure I'm going to love it. And I passed it all the time at Barnes & Noble, and I would go to the Criterion section, and I was like, I don't know what that is. I don't know the director. I got Jimmy Stewart. I know him, but eh. And now look at me. Now I want to see it. Uh, and I should have bought it a long time ago. And the final one is a movie from 1968, so still in that same period, but a bit different than these, where it was kind of an era or starting to bring in that era of new Hollywood in the late 60s, and this would fit right in. Uh, directed and produced by Peter Bogdanovich, who made movies like Paper Moon, The Last Picture Show, uh, was it Daisy Miller? Uh, and that comedy, I cannot think of that comedy that he made, that I really want to see. It's like a screwball comedy. Um, but it's has Boris Karloff in it, and it's called Targets. I'll tell you the interesting story I heard about this movie at the beginning, but let's get into it. Old Hollywood collides with new Hollywood. It's screen horror with real-life horror, and the startling debut feature from Peter Bogdanovich, bankrolled by Roger Corman. This chillingly prescient vision of America-made carnage casts Boris Karloff as a version of himself, an aging horror movie icon, whose fate intersects with that of a seemingly ordinary young man, Tim O'Kelly, on a psychotic shooting spree around Los Angeles. Charged with provocative ideas about the relationship between mass media and mass violence, Targets is a model of maximally effective filmmaking on a minimal budget and a potent first statement from one of the defining voices of the American New Wave. I heard about this, it might have been a Cinefix top 10 list, but apparently he made this by using, because he didn't have enough money to shoot all of it. So he shot what he could and then he used the rest to fill it out with like stock footage that they found in a film room or something. So this is the like the bona fide like example of 
uh, guerrilla style filmmaker where you do what you can with the money you have, and then the rest he used in like stock or like a uh, background film from other movies to piece together this movie and tell the story he wanted to make. And Boris Koloff was a horror legend in the 20s and 30s and 40s, I believe. And then in this, he's playing a version of himself, an aging horror icon. And uh, based on the clip I've seen of this, it looks very good, uh, very much in that range of early late 60s, early 70s, kind of American New Wave stuff with The Godfather, stuff like that. It has that same kind of feel to it, Bonnie and Clyde. And Peter Bogdanovich was one of the mainstays in that era. So, uh, so yeah, had to get that one. And that's all of them. Those are my six criterions. We got The Asphalt Jungle, a John Houston production. Some Like It Hot, a Billy Wilder production. Uh, Facing a Crowd, directed by Elliot Kazan, written by Bud Schoberg. Miller's Crossing, a Jordan and Ethan Cohen film. The Flight of the Phoenix, produ- produced and directed by Robert Aldrich. And Targets, directed and produced by Peter Bogdanovich. And then the Blu-ray, if you don't know what it is by now. It came out in, I want to say 1994. Let me see. Let's see if I can find a year. Let's see if I can find a year. I don't know why they don't have the year. Is there not a year on there? That's crazy. I can't find a year. Hold on. Now I got to look it up. Now I got to look it up. And I already know that it's 1994, but I have to see it. Yep, 1994. Came out September 28th, 1994. It's called Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film starring uh, Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, uh, Rick Baker, Yolanda Toussaint, Bill Murray, and others. Experience uh, Tim Burton's acclaimed true life story of the wackiest filmmaker in Hollywood history, Ed Wood, for the first time on Blu-ray, complete with the new digital restoration, featuring enhanced picture and sound. Celebrated actor Johnny Depp stars as the high-spirited director who never let terrible reviews or hostile studio executives derail his big screen dreams. With an eyeball collection of showbiz misfits, Ed takes the art of bad movie making to an all-time low. Bill Murray, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Academy Award winner Martin Landau, Best Supporting Actor in 1994 for this movie, are hilarious in this warm and witty comedy, relieve every madcap moment like never before on Blu-ray. So it's about <clears throat> the director, Ed Wood, who was notorious for being a bad filmmaker. So bad, he's good. What most people consider are people who know um, the best, worst filmmaker of all time. So it chronicles his story and how he makes his movies with Bella Lugosi, who was riddled with drugs at that time, played by Martin Landau, who apparently, who allegedly is amazing in this, and he won a supporting Oscar for it in 1994. So just seeing the clip of how he looks like a vampire and the black and white aesthetic, Tim Burton, how he shot this movie, kind of unlike any other movie he did at that time period, especially doing the Batman stuff and, you know, eventually Edward Scissorhands, it feels like it stands out, but also makes its place firmly within all the rest of that. So I've just been so excited to see that. And that's all I got. That's seven um, pieces of media I bought. And y'all know I believe in owning your media because with the climate today, you never know when you're going to take the stuff off of these streaming sites and you don't have it again. Try to own your media as much as you can because once it's gone, it's gone, and you think you have a chance to watch it, but it could be gone tomorrow, and who knows when they'll bring it back up. So 
I had to go, had to purchase all those. And every single one of those I want to see, and I will see. And we'll get back on the movies. I was going to try to do a movie thing today, but I didn't want to force anything again. Y'all know that's kind of my mantra. We just kind of do what we do. And I do want to talk about that love episode, so I'm glad I did that. But that's all I got. I've been rambling. We're going to wrap it up. Thank you all for being here, as always. And, uh, yeah, that's all I have. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace out.